So, uh, we are continuing our survey of uh, millennial views throughout church history. We are in the time of uh, entering uh, the transitionary period uh, from the 16th into the 17th century England. And uh, last week, we, uh, we considered this figure, Thomas Brightman, who's notable for writing a commentary on the book of Revelation and, and, and holding to not just one millennium, but two. Uh, he held that there was a millennium in the past that had come and gone, uh, but he saw a, another future millennium uh, that he suggested would be beginning soon. Uh, so he, he predicted that uh, the, uh, the Ottoman Turks, would their power would decline in 1650, the same years that uh, there would be a mass conversion of Jews and that Rome's power would be destroyed. And then he says, then would prevail a most happy tranquility. The joy will be so much that it will be strange and unexpected. For in place of former troubles, there will be perpetual peace. And then kings and queens will be nursing fathers and nursing mothers unto the Christian churches. So Brightman is an interesting figure because he it represents this transition where you know, the prevailing view was that the millennium either characterized the time between Christ's first and second coming, the entire time, um, or that it was in the past, that, that the millennium had come and gone. So you know, the, what you might consider the Augustinian view or the view that Calvin taught. Brightman is saying, well, there's something yet future. And that transitions... Uh, or he, he's this transitional figure that a lot of people will read and reference uh, in, in, um, it, with the rebirth of millennialism, okay? the rebirth of people saying, yes, there is something that is yet future. And another important uh, figure uh, who um, sort of takes the ball and runs with it is a man by the name of Joseph Mead. Dates 1586 to 1638. Um, interesting with Joseph Mead is that he was a conforming Anglican. So uh, remember, uh, during this time, um, uh, if you were you know if you were English, you were part of the Anglican Church, right? But amongst the ministers, there were those known as conformists who uh, who read from the prayer book, who wore the attire that the that the uh, bishop was telling them to wear, who did what they were told, and then there were the nonconformists, who later would be called Puritans, who said, you can't tell me what to do, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm going to pray whatever I want to pray. I'm going to preach whatever I want to preach. I'm going to uh, let the Spirit lead me. So conformists and nonconformists. Um, Joseph Mead was a conformist. He, was, he, he thought that the, uh, that the hierarchy of the Anglican Church was taught in Scripture. For example, he appeals to the 24 elders referenced in Revelation chapter 4 as supporting an Episcopalian church government. He says those are, that represents that. It's interesting that, that uh, years later, people will appeal to the same 24 elders and say, no, no, it, it supports Presbyterianism, right? Um, and so he, uh, but for Joseph Mead, uh, the reason why he takes, he takes Brightman and runs with it is that for Joseph Mead, the millennium was entirely future. Um, he identified the, the, the thousand-year reign as the seventh trumpet and the final judgment. And so, even though it's anachronistic, 
to apply this title, it is fair to say that Joseph Mead was a premillennialist. He saw that Jesus would come back, institute final judgment, and then usher in this millennial age. Okay, so Joseph Mead being a, um, uh, uh, what we can you know, pretty accurately call a premillennialist, but there's a note of caution here is when we're talking about these men, as these names come up, of guys who were looking forward to a future millennial age, sometimes it's a little fuzzy if we want to label them a premillennialist or a postmillennialist. They weren't, even, even amongst uh, you know, individuals, uh, they weren't entirely consistent or clear. So John Bunyan, for example, uh, you know, the famed uh, Baptist uh, guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, right? He, he kind of just, he sort of rode the fence about whether he was pre-mill or post-mill. But one thing for sure is he was a millennialist. He, he looked forward to a future age of glory, okay? Uh, here's the thing with Brightman and Mead. Um, both of them, or neither of them, Brightman's um, commentary on Revelation was published after he died. It was published, published posthumously, um, and actually was written in Latin and was translated into English in the Netherlands. And Mead's writings were suppressed as well. Why is that the case? Well, who's on the throne? Charles I. Both of these men are rejecting, or at least leaning towards, a rejection of that godly prince doctrine. It's not going to be the godly prince who ushers in the, the age of glory. It's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again, right? And so you could see how Charles I would not like that, that change, right? He, he would like that godly prince doctrine. Where yes, I'm going to be the one who's leading this reformation, right? Um, so both Brightman and Mead's writings were suppressed until the, until the, the revolution. Okay, so there's going to be a time, if you're not familiar with English history, uh, Charles I is uh, ultimately uh, kicked off the throne. Uh, they, they lop his head off. They, they kill the king. Uh, and, uh, and there's a civil war that's happening. And during this time, in the 1640s, you have Parliament, who's acting unilaterally apart from the king, uh, calling an assembly of divines, of, of theologians and pastors, to help draft a new confession of faith. Does that sound familiar? Westminster Confession of Faith, our confessional document. This is, the, this is what's happening at the time. But another thing that Parliament does is they begin opening the publishing houses. So the 1640s is, uh, is a time in England where uh, you know, the books which had previously been suppressed or put down or censored are now being published. And so both Brightman and Mead's writings promoting this millennial view, are being, uh, are being published now in masses. And that was something that, par- that Parliament did on purpose because they wanted to uh, you know, uh, create this new millennial fervor. Okay? Um, one of the guys who, who really appreciated both Brightman and Mead um, references them both, and, and he, he tends to think that they uh, were getting the, their... Um, Understanding the book of Revelation correct, the man by the name of William Twiss, uh, he's 1578 to 
1646. Anyone ever heard of William Twiss? Sometimes referred to as prolocutor twists. A prolocutor is uh, kind of like a moderator, uh, somebody who's, who uh, presides over an assembly. And he was the first prolocutor or moderator of the Westminster Assembly. Okay, so the, the, the men who met, who, who drafted our confession of faith in the larger and shorter catechisms, he was the guy presiding over that until he died. He got sick and died. Uh, so they had to replace him. But Twiss, William Twiss, was a premillennialist. He really appreciated the writings of Brightman and Mead. Um, meanwhile, up in Scotland, men, uh, uh, remember, the, the Scottish church is a Presbyterian church. And uh, remember, uh, I talked about the disappointment that, that, this, that this church of Scotland and ministers in the Church of Scotland experience when James Stuart, who was James VI of Scotland, became James I of England. And when he made his way to London and started experiencing the Anglican Church with its hierarchy and its bishops, he said, I like this. He equated Episcopal church government with with a monarchy. And so he's known for saying, no bishop, no king. Those Presbyterians, they're too democratic. They feel like they have the power to rule the church and not the king through the bishop. So there's a lot of things going on in Scotland where they're wanting to purge the Scottish church of prelacy. So this term prelacy, it's, just a, it's another term for church government being ruled by a bishop. Hierarchy. They don't, want, they don't like prelacy. Uh, James was successful through Archbishop William Laud in, um, in having bishops uh, to have a permanent, status, a permanent standing in the presbyteries. They didn't like that. You, you can't mix these two forms of church government. So they were wanting, they were wanting to overthrow that. And um, there was a man by the name of George Gillespie, Um, the I can't write and talk at the same time. Excuse me. 1613, 1648. Um, George Gillespie was one of the Scottish delegates who was sent down to England to Westminster uh, to the Westminster Assembly. He was uh, kind of a young hotshot. Um, apparently, made a name for himself as the guy who spoke the most. Uh, we have some guys like that in our presbytery who. You know, they're constantly standing up and making speeches. And um, there's an award at our General Assembly um, known as the, the Jack in the Box Award uh, for the guy who stands up the most. And we award that at the end of the General Assembly. Uh, George Gillespie would have got the Jack in the Box prize. Uh, he, made, uh, he, he was constantly making speeches and arguments as they debated the drafting of, of these documents. Um, George Gillespie adopted a strong millennialism um, in in the pursuit to purify the Church of Scotland of prelacy imposed by James I and later Charles I. And so here with Gillespie, you have a very clear rejection of that godly prince doctrine. James and Charles aren't cutting it. They're not godly enough. We need to get rid, uh, we, we need to move on. 
And so there's uh, this strong push towards ushering in this new age apart from the king. Another new development, remember that the three main hallmarks of the Genevan eschatology, um, which was the Pope's the Antichrist, right? Uh, there was the, um, the, martyrdom idol- uh, 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 the martyrdom identity, right? The church under the cross, faithful witness in the, in, the, in the midst of persecution, and the godly prince doctrine that we will usher in this reformation through the civil magistrate, um, he, he rejected the godly prince doctrine, and he identified a new antichrist. He still believed the pope is the antichrist. Everyone still agreed on that, or at least not everyone, but all the reformed people are. But a new antichrist has emerged, that of Arminianism. And you know, the, the Arminianism of William Laud, for example, and Laudianism, he said, this is antichrist, and we need, we need to wipe this out as well. Uh, and, and then, most crucially, you'll notice that each, each of these guys I introduce, um, I'm, I'm identifying their, their ecclesiology. So Brightman was a Presbyterian, Mead was a conforming Anglican, um, Twiss, I believe, was an independent, Gillespie, of course, a Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterian. But for Gillespie, his vision of the millennium was a Presbyterian vision. So part and parcel of this glory age that he, that he was anticipating would be that everyone would become Presbyterian. You might say, well, amen to that, right? Uh, as a, you know, spoken like a true OPC guy, right? Uh, but uh, this is the thing, it, it's, it's imposed, right? And, and the way in which, the, the way in which you, uh, you know, eradicate prelacy it's by chopping off the heads of kings, right? So we would say, well, you know, we'd like everyone to be Presbyterian, but we're not going to force, you know, we can't do it by the sword. Well, Gillespie's getting pretty close to that. There's a you know, Scottish army that's fighting uh, these, these forces of Antichrist. So you have men like Gillespie and a strong millennial fervor up in Scotland and they're asked to join together with people, uh, with, with uh, theologians and pastors in England to help draft this new, uh, um, well, originally they were commissioned to just revise the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, but they, they got through, I think, Article 18, and they thought, we're just going to have to start anew. So they scrapped that project and, and just started what we know of as the Westminster Confession of Faith. But in order to get Scotland on board, the Scottish Church required English Parliament to sign what is known as the Solemn League and Covenant. Anyone ever heard of the Solemn League and Covenant? If you are uh, of, you know, if, if you know anyone who's Scottish Presbyterian or uh, as they would be later termed Covenanters, uh, so uh, it, our sister denomination, the RPCNA. Is, uh, is of that heritage. They're known as the Covenanters. That denomination still affirms the Solemn League and Covenant. Um, so this, uh, the date is uh, 1643. That's when England, the English Parliament, signs off on this. And I'm just going to read, I'm going to read the first two opening articles of it. It says that we shall sincerely, really, and constantly 
through the grace of God, endeavor in our several places and callings, the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland, in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, against our common enemies, the reformation of religion in the, England, in the kingdoms of England and Ireland, in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, according to the word of God, and the example of the best Reformed churches. So what, what's their stated goal? is to preserve the Reformed religion in the three kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland. Okay, And part of preserving the Reformed religion is uh, in its doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, Okay, according to the Word of God and according to the example of the best Reformed churches. I want you, I'm going to highlight that phrase and come back and revisit it. They go on, they say, uh, and shall endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for worship, and catechizing. So, um, so what are they hoping to do? They want to unite the, the churches of the three kingdoms under, uh, under one confession of faith, one directory for worship, uh, one, uh, one form of church government, and uh, catechism. So, does that, do those things sound familiar? That's exactly what we have produced by the Westminster Assembly, uh, some of which we have adopted as the OPC, as our statement of faith. Okay, So, they want to get everyone united around these documents that are produced by the Westminster Assembly. Um, and they go on to say, and, uh, that we and our posterity after us may as brethren live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. Article 2, that we shall, in like manner, without respect of persons, endeavor to the extirpation of popery, prelacy, that is, church government by archbishops, bishops, their chancellors and commissioners, deans, deans and chapters, archdeacons, and all other ecclesiastical officers, depending on that hierarchy. So what do they want to do? Well, they want to get rid of popery, another term for the Roman Catholic Church, but also prelacy. Anything that reminds them of popery. Not popery. Popery. <laughs> the Pope. Okay. Um, uh, anything that, you know, any, anything that, that so, so that's the Anglican Church, right? That's Laudianism. They say we want to get rid of that, the extirpation of that. Um, they go on to say uh, super, they want to get rid of superstition, heresy, schism, profaneness, and whatsoever shall be found contrary to sound doctrine and the power of godliness. Lest we partake of other men's sins and thereby be in danger to receive of their plagues and that the Lord may be one and his name one in the three kingdoms. So it goes on, and you can you look this up online, but I want to highlight, this is, so this is the, the stated goal that the Church of Scotland um, had the Church of England, or the, sorry, the, the, the Parliament, English Parliament, sign off on. And this is really what spurs the Westminster Assembly into action. Okay. Um, any questions? I'll pause to see if there's any questions or comments there. Yes, Allie.
Well, the monarchy wanted to keep the, the Anglican church, the, the Episcopal hierarchy, prelacy, because they saw that as reinforcing the claim of the throne. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, well, yeah, that, so that's a, that is a, a long question, but um, hopefully even before we close today, you'll see uh, we're get, we'll, get to, uh, we'll get to the colonies. So we're going to get stateside soon, okay? Um, but here's the thing that's really interesting. When you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith and you consider the, the various men who were there, represented there, and their various millennial views. Guys like William Twist, who was a premillennialist. Guys like George Gillespie, who what you know you could probably accurately call him a postmillennialist, right? And there were others there. Um, when you look at um, the the section, the, the the chapters on you know final judgment and last days, you don't find any of that. It, what's remarkable is what's not there. When you, when you read their other writings or when you read the sermon, the sermons that they preach. So George Gillespie preached this fiery sermon before Parliament. And, you know, basically it's a call to arms. And, you know, like we're, we're ushering in this age, right? Um, you don't see any of that. It's, it's a very scaled back, uh, you know, Jesus is coming back and he's going to judge the living and the dead. It's, it's very, it's thankfully... Most of the, the millennial fervor that these guys were promoting is not in our confession of faith. The one place where you could go to find sort of the laundry list of things that many of these men were hoping and praying for with regard to their eschatological view is not in, in the topic of last, time, last days, but actually it's in their treatment of the Lord's Prayer and the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Nathan, of course, you know what the second petition of the Lord's Prayer is, right? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the first one. Thy, thy kingdom come, right? That's, that's, the first, that's the second petition. The first is hallowed be thy name. The second petition is uh, hallowed be thy name, or thy, sorry, thy kingdom come. And so Westminster Larger Catechism 191 asks, what do we pray for in the second petition? And the answer is, in the second petition, which is, thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray. Now, listen, listen to, uh, to these various things. And, and as I read it, you'll understand that these are taken from Scripture, this is scriptural language, but I want you to try to put yourselves in the shoes or in the mindset of the men who are drafting this and what they think these things mean, okay? We pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. Well, who's the kingdom of sin and Satan? Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church, okay? Uh, the gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called... So remember another element that made its way over to the British Isles 
was that interpretation of Romans 11, where Paul says, and thus all Israel will be saved, right? There's this understanding or expectation that there will be a mass conversion of Jews at the last day. So the Jews called. The fullness of the Gentiles brought in, also from Romans 11, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances. So what are they thinking of here? Well, depending on if you're Presbyterian or Independent or Episcopal, which there were all, all of those things were represented in the Westminster Assembly, they have different ideas of gospel officers and ordinances, right? Purge from corruption, countenance and maintained by the civil magistrate. Now, those three things, purge from corruption, countenance and maintained by the civil magistrate, in their mind, those all go together. Not in my mind. But in their mind, it all goes together. That the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those who are yet in their sins and the confirming and comforting and building up of those that are already converted, that Christ will rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and are reigning with him forever, and that he would be pleased to so exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends." So I think, you know, we can, I mean, we do sign off on this statement of faith. This is, this is in our confession of faith as a, or in our larger catechism as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but understand what they were thinking of, right? Their, their expectations um, may be somewhat different than the 21st century American context. Okay. Last guy I want to introduce or last time we have time to introduce, uh, another, uh, another uh, guy who was at the Westminster Assembly and by the name of Thomas Goodwin. Goodwin's date, 1600 to 1680. Lived a long, full life for 17th century. Um, Thomas Goodwin actually spent some time in Holland uh, while in exile, and he, uh, he preached in, uh, in an English church, uh, English language church there. And there was a, a, um, a sermon that was delivered. It was an anonymous sermon. It was published, but published anonymously. But most scholars and even contemporaries of the day um, attribute it to Thomas Goodwin. The title of the sermon is A Glimpse of Zion's Glory. So just with that title, you, you see, you know, it's a glimpse of Zion's glory. So there's something that, like, he's looking forward to, okay? And this sermon uh, has been characterized by scholars as an independent. So when I say independent, I'm talking about another form of church government. So you have, you have the Episcopal form of government with bishops and a hierarchy. You have Presbyterian form of church government, which... We are, which is an elder-ran church, and presbyteries, regional churches meeting to oversee the local church. But then you have what is known as independency, where it's every church for itself. Each church has its own autonomy. Okay? Goodwin was an independent. And this sermon uh, was a manifesto of independency. It was a call to arms to usher in the millennial reign of Christ, which for him was decidedly future, 
and for him was decidedly independent. So what you need to appreciate is during this time, not only was there a rise in millennial views, people looking forward to this golden age, whether it's a pre- or post-mill view, that, that can be up in the air, but for each and every one of these guys, their ecclesiology, their understanding of church government is tied to their eschatology. And only, you know, the, the only way in which we will see this or experience this glory is when everyone conforms to our form of church government. So getting back to the solemn league and covenant that I talked about, right? How they want to unite the three kingdoms and they want to unite the, the, church, the three churches in what? Confession of faith and church government. And, of course, church government according to the word of God, but also church government according to the best example of other Reformed churches. The question is, which churches, which, which churches are you talking about? And so even as they were signing this, there was equivocation happening. Because, of course, when the Presbyterians signed it, they said, well, of course, the best example is us, the Scottish, the Scottish church. If the independents were signing it, they were saying, no, 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 the independent churches, which were making their way over to the new world, independent churches, breaking away from the oversight of the Church of England. Okay? So even at the very beginning of this endeavor, there's fractures happening. There's fractures happening because their ecclesiology is tied so closely to their eschatology. Um, uh, in this sermon, A Glimpse of Science Glory, um, uh, most likely Thomas Goodwin spoke of the independent churches being the temporal anticipations of the kingdom of God. Not just the church being an anticipation of the kingdom of God, but the independent churches as being that foretaste of that millennial age. He appealed most notably to the commoners to overthrow the authority of the apostate churches. Uh, referencing Psalm 137, he said, Blessed is he that dashes the, the brats of Babylon against the stones. Um, you know, re- re- referencing, of course, the apostate church, which he would see as Rome, but also perhaps also the Anglican church. He predicted that apocalyptic judgment would begin in 1650 and that the millennium would begin in 1695. Unfortunately, he didn't live to see that. He didn't live to see that uh, his prediction didn't come to pass. Uh, He spoke of that time, uh, that, that future millennial age, quote, as one that is such a glorious presence of Christ as shall so instruct them as they had not need to take heed to the word of prophecy. The presence of Christ shall be there and supply all kind of ordinances. So here's, uh, here's this new thread, this new theme, where as Goodwin is looking forward to this millennial age with Christ being there, then what will we not need anymore? We're not going to need the word. We're not going to need the sacraments. Why? Because Jesus will be there. He will so instruct us that we don't even need word and sacrament anymore. Does that sound familiar? Remember the Anabaptists? Remember Joachim of Fior, who spoke of the age of the Spirit where we don't need word and sacrament anymore? 
Now these independents are speaking of this time where you don't need the word and sacraments anymore. Okay. Uh, we're going to we're gonna have to pause there because we're out of time. But uh, I want to continue this uh, to see where this is taken, uh, even in England, uh, where, for example, you have the Quakers who say, yeah, let's just get rid of, get rid of word and sacraments. We don't need that at all. We have the inner light. So it's, it's an interesting trajectory to see. But we'll uh, pause at this point. Let's, let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you uh, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that you will come again to judge the living and the dead, and that you will take us to yourself, uh, so that where you are, there we, there we will be also. Thank you for the hope of glory, and we do pray uh, that you might come quickly, Lord Jesus. We do pray that your word would go forth, that you would call both Jew and Gentile uh, to yourself as you uh, create a new people. Uh, Lord, uh, bless us this week as we go about our daily lives. Help us to love and serve you as well as our neighbor. And gather us together again as we call on your name. We ask this in your name. Amen.